Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Eric Jones. Eric Jones is Director of European and Eurasian Studies and Professor of European Studies and International Political Economy at the School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS, at Johns Hopkins University in Bologna. Eric, we're going to talk not about the public health response of the EU to the coronavirus, uh, and COVID-19, but to the, the financial, economic response of member states to the coronavirus, where, and you've been writing a lot about that, including a very lengthy essay for, for my website, Encompass, recently, for which I thank you. I think of Dick and me as a kind of a, uh, a mature student, a very mature student, and you're the professor. These are conversations, but you may have to explain some of the technical language uh, to me, okay, as we go along. So I warn you in advance, you may have to be a bit more pedagogic than you would normally be. This is your day job, you're a professor. So tell me why the Eurogroup, uh, the member state finance ministers who belong to the, uh, to the single currency, uh, have been meeting all week uh, without any kind of conclusion. Why is there such an impasse and what have they been trying to achieve? Well, Paul, first, thanks a lot for having me on your show. And, and uh, I, think, I think the easiest way to think about this is that the finance ministers need to figure out some way to spend an awesome amount of money to respond to this big shutdown that we're in right now. I mean, you're talking from your living room, I'm talking from my study, and, and, and nobody's doing any proper work. As a consequence, <laughs> of which, what we've got to do is figure out some way to, to replace incomes and stimulate economic performance, and the amount of money is just jaw-dropping. And, 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 and the, the issue for one group of people is that they need to borrow money as cheaply as they can. Let's call that group of people the Southern Europeans, although it's not just the Southern Europeans. Right. Um, they need to borrow as much money as cheaply as they can. And then the Northern Europeans are like, well, if you're going to borrow all that money, how are you going to pay it back? And this is the fight right now. It's between how do we get it cheaply and how are you sure to pay it back? And we've got to figure out some way to get those two sides together. But isn't the issue also that the... Um there's a kind of dialogue of the death going on, whereby the, the, the southern European states, larger but not exclusively, who want this new facility to be agreed uh, collectively, um, is focused on, yes, the relaunch of the economy thanks to the, the back of the coronavirus crisis, whereas uh, it is not about dealing with historical debt, right? Whereas the, the so-called frugal member states, Netherlands obviously at the forefront, and other other countries behind them are saying, well, this may be used or abused and, and misused for trying to deal with historical debt. Is that a fair representation or have I got it wrong? No, it's a fair representation in the sense the reason the Southern Europeans want to be able to borrow cheaply is because they have a lot of debt already. And the Northern Europeans don't need to worry about that because they have less debt. Uh, and the reason that the, the Northern Europeans are worried about the Southern Europeans paying it back is because they look at the Southern Europeans and they say, you have a lot of debt already. And, 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 and what they don't want to do is create some mechanism that makes that previous debt go away because they feel like if they do that, that'll just set a bad precedent going into the future. I mean, I think, I, I think this is something that we should talk about in greater detail, but I want that basic yeah. tension to be understood. Right. So therefore, is it exclusively therefore a discussion amongst Eurozone members and therefore leveraging or, or bringing the European Central Bank as, as the kind of the the Guardian and all this, what is the role of the European Central Bank in, in all this? And what are, the, what are mem some member states asking the ECB to do, which historically it has not done? 
So the, the, the role of the ECB in this conversation is to buy time for the conversation to take place. Okay. Right? And the way the ECB buys time is by keeping the, the sovereign debt markets from exploding. Uh, and they would explode because if you think about it, all these investors who have all this debt, right? You know, one of the problems with having a lot of debt is you've got a lot of investors that are holding your debt. Right. And, and, and all this Southern European debt is held by investors who are looking and saying the same thing that the Northern Europeans are saying. How are these Southern Europeans going to pay back their debt? And if they're not going to pay it back, then maybe I should be holding Northern European debt instead. But if they sell Southern European debt and buy Northern European debt, then the Southern European economies are going to collapse in, in a time when they're already collapsing. So the ECB is trying to keep every, all these investors in place until we resolve the fiscal conversation at the European level and, and then replace the ECB with some more lasting facility to make sure everybody can borrow the money they need and pay it back in a timely manner. Well, is there any common ground between the Eurozone member states at all? Or are there two very distinct camps, basically North and South, frugal, profligate, to use a totally inappropriate language, uh, and never the two groups will, will find common, common ground? Well, I don't think it's it's really that you know they're they're like from Mars and Venus, right? <laughs> Let, you know, let's think about this. You know, if we're going to talk about frugal and and freaky or whatever we want to <laughs> use, right? Uh, the frugal guys now were the freaky guys in two thousand and eight, right? I mean, you know, how many in two thousand and eight? How many Dutch banks failed and how many Italian banks failed? And the answer is all the Dutch banks failed and none of the Italian banks did. Right. And Germany spent more on bank bailouts in 2008 and 2009 than Italy and Spain ever even imagined spending. So, so before we get all obsessed with the idea that these guys are frugal, let's just remember they had a very different crisis last time around. And so they're in a very different situation this time around. Uh, and, and what we need to do is to get these people from very different situations to agree on common cause. Without being too political and nerdy, it seems to me that the, the European Council, the heads of state and government who were meeting before the most recent Eurogroup meeting, basically kicked the, not kicked the can down the road, but basically, you know, delegated to use a euphemism, this thorny issue to the Eurogroup. Uh, and clearly the Eurogroup meeting for hours and hours and hours into the night and the next day and still with no agreement, they are clearly failing to, to reach an agreement, therefore suggest this issue has to go back up the scale to the European Council for some kind of resolution or not. I mean, you know, so this is how po political decisions are made, right? right? I mean, it's not like it, it's not like political decisions happen at the speed of light. I always feel like I'm in one of those Matrix movies, you know, where Keanu <laughs> Reeves bends over so quickly and the bullet sort of flies. Well, you know, for financial market participants, they are they are Neo in the Matrix, right? I mean, they move unbelievably fast, and, right. and politicians move at normal speed, and, and, and in normal speed. Politicians are doing things, you know, incredible, but, but the financial markets are dodging and weaving like crazy and making us all afraid. So what we need to do is to, to speed up a little bit the political process, but we have to accept that it is a political process. And at the end, everybody has to live with the results. And that's why this is taking such a long time. Well, is there grounds for sympathy why some politicians are saying existing instruments, including this thing called the European Stability Mechanism, and even the seven-year budget, or any annual budget for that matter, the MFF of the European Union, could be, could be used or re reconfigured for, to, to address the, the issue, or is it a different scale of magnitude we're talking about? <laughs> I mean, so the thing is, is, 
we're not talking about rocket science. We're talking about borrowing money. And, <laughs> and borrowing money is, we've got lots of ways that we can borrow money. And, 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 and what we need are the political agreements on the terms under which the borrowing is going to take place, right? right? And so this is just a debate about the political terms under which the borrowing takes place. This, all this technical stuff is just a mystification. If the political will is there, they could take any of these institutions, the EF, SM, the European Investment Bank, the European Commission, and, and tweak it in such a way to make it do very unusual things, right? Yeah. Uh, including borrowing what they need to borrow, which is about a trillion to two trillion euros worth of money, right? Right. So what's the argument, therefore, for doing this thing on a, on a European scale, but certainly Eurozone scale, if not EU-wide scale, as opposed to each member state, what it's doing now, in effect, going, going it alone and doing stuff on a national basis? So, so think about it this way, right? Um, the German economy and the French economy and the Austrian economy are, are closely tied to the industrial north of Italy, right? And, 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 and the supply chains run across this whole area. But, but unfortunately, the northern part of Italy borrows money right now at two percentage points higher interest rates than the Austrians and the Germans and you right. see what I mean? Yeah. So, so yeah, we could tell the Italians, hey, you guys are on your own, borrow the money you want. But the problem is they're gonna pay a lot more to borrow that money. And, and so they're gonna borrow less than they need to borrow. They're gonna have bigger problems afterwards and their economy is gonna slow down for years and years and years. And that's gonna be a drag, a giant millstone on the neck of the Austrians and the Germans and the French, right? So, so what, why don't we get it so that they can borrow the money more cheaply? Right. You, you've written elsewhere, and I was trying to get my head around that, and because people don't talk about these issues in, in the terms you have, which is in effect that when we're talking about this issue of mutualization of debt, in effect, uh, it, it already exists, right? If, if I understand correctly what you're writing about, that, you know, what certain member states do ultimately have, it has an impact on other member states, even though it's not couched in terms of mutualization. Could you, if I got it right again, Professor, could you expand a bit on that? So, so the whole idea of mutualizing debt, right? Well, I think we need to clarify what we mean by mutualizing debt. Because, yes, please. Yes, because please. the idea of mutualizing debt is not, Paul, I borrow money and you pay it back. Right? <laughs> That's not mutualizing debt. That's when you give me money, okay? Right. And, and you just happen to borrow the money to give it to me. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is you and I go together and we borrow money. And then you spend some of the money and I spend some of the money and you pay back what you spend and I pay back what I spend, right? right. But if I go under a bus, then you're on the hook for the money that I spend, right? That's what mutualization means. So then the, the, the issue is, okay, um, how many situations are there in Europe like that, right? Where you're on the hook. Let me put it to you this way. If, if some like magic machine came and made Italy disappear, then the rest of Europe would be on the hook for a lot of things, right? right. So a lot of things that Italy does are mutualized in that sense, right? Italy does them by itself, but it's tied in with everything else, including the European Central Bank. And, and so a lot of Italian debt, about 20% of Italian debt, is held by the European Central Bank. Now, you heard my voice go up there when I said about 20%. <laughs> and so if you imagine, they've got like, Italy has like 2.3 trillion euros worth of debt, right? 20% of that is what about 500 billion euros worth of debt that's sitting in the Central Bank. And if Italy goes, then who pays that, right? 
Right. That's okay. mutualized. <laughs> that gets okay. From the capital of the European system of central banks. Okay. Well, on, still on the central bank, you've written in this essay for Encompass and elsewhere, but especially in this essay that, if I, again, if I understand uh, correctly, the regular health warning and all these things, is that you, you, you're saying that the member states, so the Eurozone member states, are asking the ECB to do things it was never designed to do. Uh, that, in other words, make decisions that impact, I'm quoting from your article, impact explicitly on government finances. Uh, the ECB's, ma ECB's mandate is to maintain price stability. It only recently accepted responsibility for financial market supervision. And you go on to say that if you go down this path of putting more and more uh, responsibility on the shoulders of the ECB and that by extension the second currency, both are going to be je jeopardized or, or weakened. Could you, again, could you uh, amplify a bit what you're trying to say there, what you are saying there? <laughs> So, so I guess the easiest way is just to tell a story, right? So the, 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 the role of the ECB is to stabilize prices over the medium term where price stability is defined as an, an, an expected rate of inflation of just below 2%, right? Below but close to 2%. That's its role. Okay. Um, now, in order to do that role, the ECB has to do a bunch of different things. It has to buy debt. It has to issue currency. Right? It doesn't really issue currency. It issues central bank credits, but it just gets too complicated. Um, and, and, and it has to maintain some kind of stability within the financial system. Right? That's what the ECB is supposed to do. What the ECB is not supposed to do is sit like, like that dragon in, in The Hobbit on, on a giant mountain of Italian sovereign debt. Right? Right. Because when, when it sits on 20% of Italy's sovereign debt, how, how can, it, can it ever unload that position, right? How right. can it stop buying that position without affecting Italian sovereign debt markets, right? And, and so here's the story. You, know, you remember when Syriza was elected uh, or able to form a government in Greece in, in late January of 2015? Um, well, the, it, Greece was in a program at that time. And because Greece was in a program at that time, it qualified for a waiver on the credit requirements of Greek sovereign debt for use as collateral at the ECB, which sounds really complicated. God. But what it means in essence is that the ECB said, you don't have to abide by the rules. You can use, Greek banks can use Greek sovereign debt as collateral when they need to come and get cash from us. Um, but, but when Syriza formed the government and said, we're going to get out of the program, then the ECB had to make a choice. And the choice was, do we keep the waiver on Greek sovereign debt? And that means the banks can continue to get access to credit in the normal way. Or do we pull that waiver off? At which point, just by dint of this one action, the ECB took away all the collateral from the Greek banking system and pushed the Greek banking system out of the normal financial channels and into other financial channels. Now, my argument would be that's not the kinds of decisions that the ECB should be making. Right? right? We need to keep the ECB out of those decisions. Why? Because all you have to do is read Yanni Varoufakis' book and you think you come away with a, a deep seated suspicion that the ECB is some awful conspiracy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of people read his book and believed that. And they're not just Greek people. Irish people remember when something similar happened to them in 2010. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, we don't want the ECB to be in those situations. We want the ECB to just be focused on price inflation and not all this other craziness. Right. Okay. Well, 
I want to cover three more things before we finish off, Eric. One is um, the, the non-Eurozone member states. The second thing is the impact on maybe populist politics. You're also a political scientist, I know. Uh, and then finally, your, your thoughts about, you keep talking about the need to create some new common fiscal authority. So first, so, um, first things first, last time I checked, eight member states of the European Union were not members of the Eurozone. So is this debate that just stand watching from the sidelines saying, come on guys, get your act together, or are they also impacted by, by the Eurozone member impasse? Okay, so, so imagine, for example, that you're, you're Hungary or, or, or the Czech Republic, right? Um, you know, those guys have a very strong vested interest in seeing the Euro area economy do well. And so they have to be looking at this conversation going, you know, please guys, whatever you do, come up with some formula to borrow enough money to make sure that the Euro area economy does well, because we're intrinsically tied to the supply chains that run through the Euro area economy. And when the Euro area does poorly, our economies get flattened as a result. We're not talking about how badly their economies are being affected by this crisis, because there are bad things happening everywhere. And there's only so much you know, real estate in the news, but, but, but their economies are getting flattened by this crisis. They need not just help themselves, but they need a big, strong European economy to pull them out of the mess that's being created as we try to prevent everybody from dying and blowing up their health systems along the way. Right. A quick political question then, since you're, you work and live in, uh, in Italy and where it's not unique in Italy, of course, but populism is pretty rife there when people, anti-European sentiment doesn't seem to need much encouragement at the moment across the EU. I'm not picking on Italy per se, but from your vantage point in Bologna, do you see already significant signs, serious signs of, of important politicians, not necessarily in power, uh, leveraging and exploiting the, this crisis for political gain? Yes. <laughs> Next question. You know, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, it's everywhere, right? I mean, nobody, yeah. nobody wants to be too vocal about it, but but you see, these opposition politicians are trying to position themselves so that you know when the money really starts to flow, they can be preventing the incumbents from getting the big bump from handling this crisis well, right? I mean, these opposition politicians have to tell a story that they would have been doing a better job if they'd been in power, and they're getting ready to do that. And part of that is making Europe look bad. Right. Okay, well, this final question then, because it's important that it sounds a bit technical, but I want to press you a bit because it seems like a, a magic solution uh, to, to what we're going through at the moment in, in financial terms. You talk about creating a common fiscal authority. What what is that? In layman's terms, what would a, a common fiscal authority be and, and why, how and why would it be able to at least contribute to solving the problem? So this is where I'm going to lose your whole audience <laughs> right? because, because I'm, I'm, I'm totally iconoclastic in this debate. Right? I don't think we need giant tax and spend authority at the European level. And if the commission succeeds in its cunning plan to get bigger borrowing capacity out of this crisis, I'll be amazed, right? But, but, but I don't think that that's, that's really what Europe needs. What Europe needs is some kind of an institution that underwrites debt that everybody promises they'll pay back and, and, and as a result can, allows everybody to borrow at a low rate of money, right? So when I talk about a fiscal authority, what I really mean is some, somebody who can issue debt that people promise to pay back. 
Right. Okay. Uh, okay. And this is not Corona bond. This is something quite different, right? We're talking about something else? No, I mean, that's the essence of, I mean, when we call it Corona bond, we could call it anything. I'd be happy to call it whatever the Dutch want, right? We can come up with a word <laughs> for it. And, and as long as we can convince them that the Italians really are going to pay it back, but they can't go down to Italy and say, you know, we're going to watch you pay it back piece by piece, um, then, then I think we'd be okay, right? Wow. Every, nobody, nobody wants a gift in this. What they really need are low interest rates, long maturities, and huge volumes of money. The Americans are about to spend $4 trillion fighting this problem, and the Europeans are marshalling at best a trillion euros, right? I mean, the, just to give you orders of magnitude, we need a lot more money mobilized in Europe than we're seeing today. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Eric Jones, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you, Paul.